Brilliant. So as I said, we're in Mark 1, 35 to 39. We're picking up the story. Last time when we were in Mark, Jesus uh, had entered a fairly large town called Capernaum. He just launched his ministry. And on the surface of things, it looked like things couldn't really have gone much better. He'd spent the entire day preaching in the synagogue, healing the sick, casting out demons, crowds and crowds of people coming to see him. Everyone was blown away by his authority. That's what we were talking about last time. And people are with him until the early hours of the morning. And today, we're going to be reading about what happens immediately after that first day, before the sun has even risen. So, Mark 1, 35 to 39. And the words are going to come up on the screen as well. Here we go. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up left the house and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. Jesus replied, let's go somewhere else to the nearby villages so that I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. Amen. A short one today. Uh, So after this mammoth day of ministry where, you know, there's teaching and healing, there's crowds everywhere, Jesus is exhausted. And it's important for us to remember at this point that Jesus is both fully God and he is fully human. You know, he would have been totally drained at this point. He needs sleep. What is his next move? It's the title of our talk today. Jesus got up. Jesus leaves his bed in the dead of night, and while it's still dark, even, he goes to a secluded place to be with the Father. So we're going to be asking today, what happens as a result of that decision from Jesus to get up and in the middle of the night just go to God? And what does his example mean for us today? So the first thing is that Jesus, in that moment, is restored. Um, Just as a show of hands, has anyone ever heard of Sir Alan Cobham? No. Yes, one brilliant Dave Stemp. Love it. So I hadn't, and uh, the majority of us here hadn't either until I did a quick online search. He was an English aviation pioneer of the 20th century and a bit of a forgotten hero. Um, but after learning to fly in World War One, he, he, in a single journey, he went from London to Cape Town, which had like never been done before. And in the same year, he was knighted after he flew from Australia and then landed his seaplane in the Thames in front of the Houses of Parliament. And it was a big deal. He was like a big celebrity of the day. People said about him he was brave, visionary, and innovative. So this guy was a big deal. And he's still a fairly big name today in certain circles because he pioneered the technique of IFR. You might not have heard of IFR, but that stands for in-flight refueling. This is where a plane can fly further and longer and more efficiently by being refueled from another plane, a second plane, in midair without the first plane having to land, okay? So he started developing this technique back in the 1920s, and these same techniques are still the standard for military aircraft in 2017, which is pretty impressive. Because of Alan Cobham, mid-air refueling means that you can get refueled without having to land, pretty simply. You can continue on your journey with a whole new lease of life, and you can go longer, further, and faster. 
Now that's a real picture of what's going on here with Jesus. See, as we've said, Jesus has come off the back of a crazy day, serving people all around him. He's still with people well into the night. And we're picking up, you know, the story somewhere between 3 and 6 in the morning the next day. Flipping heck. 3 and 6 in the morning. You know, at this point, what is our assumption? What should Jesus be doing? Obviously, he should be asleep, right? You know, no one would question that's where he's supposed to be. He's been given out all day. He's totally exhausted. He's drained. It's time to sleep. What's baffling is that Jesus doesn't do what we expect him to do. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up. Why? Jesus is doing something sacrificial here. He's getting up when he's exhausted, when it's pitch dark, when everyone else is asleep, and he's leaving the comfort and the warmth of his bed. Even as I'm saying that, I'm like, oh, what are you doing? You know what I mean? He's leaving that place, you know, to go to a quiet place, or in some translations it says a desolate place. He's leaving that place of comfort to go to the wilderness. You know, I don't know about you, but I love my bed. Like, that is up there in the top ten. Like, it's really high. Mornings are tough, even with an extra hour in bed like today. Like, I really struggle. But Jesus forces himself out of that warm, comfortable place into the cold dark of the wilderness to meet with God. And we can think, well, why? You know, if Jesus needs to pray, why didn't he just wait a few hours and then get up? and pray, or, you know, really, he's earned a lazy morning, you know, he can have a fry up and just wait until the afternoon and then pray with God, you know, he's, he's had a full day, why not? That's totally fine, right? Jesus knows that he needs to be alone with the Father, and he also knows that as soon as it's light, he's going to be hounded with people, it's going to be all go. So he's drained and tired and pushed to, to exhaustion. But he knows that right now what he needs more than a warm bed and a few hours sleep is to be in the presence of his father alone. And if that means going to the wilderness at 3 a.m., that's what he's going to do. He gets up. He's intentional about it. And Jesus would have known throughout Scripture, you know, what to do when you're at this point of being completely drained, you know, physically and spiritually. Exodus 33, God says to Moses, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Or he would have known Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. Jesus would have known that the solution in this point is to go to God. He knows what he needs to do. And he's laying out a model for his disciples in this moment. And later on in Mark 6, which we're going to get to, I don't know when, eventually. um, When we get to Mark 6, we'll see that Jesus sends his disciples out and he says, I want you to do the same stuff that I've been doing. I want you to be preaching and casting out demons and healing people. But it's going to be tough. You're going to come across opposition. But I want you to do it and I want you to be prepared for that. And he sends them out and they see God do amazing things. They come back physically, emotionally, and spiritually exhausted, what's the first thing Jesus says to them in that moment? Does he say, great job, have a lie down, have a brew, you know, put your feet up, you've done well. Is that what he says? Jesus says, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. No distractions, no agenda other than one-on-one time with Jesus. And he's saying to us, that's what real rest looks like. You know, we can confuse physical rest with this kind of rest that Jesus is talking about. If you imagine, we're talking about the mid-air refuel thing. If you imagine our lives like planes, 
go with me for a minute. If we're like planes flying in the air and we've been following Jesus, we've been, asked, we've been you know, obeying what he's asking us to do, we've been sacrificial for our time, we've been given out, we've been going for it full throttle, and then we kind of get to the point where we're like, oh, it's like energy's low. What do we want to do? Immediately think, well, we've got to land, right? We've got to just like park right here and just, just chill out and not do anything. You know, I'm due some me time, right? It's a spa day or, you know, a day in front of the TV for me. I'm not really one for the spas. But the plane, you know, it comes into land and the engine shuts down and we just kind of relax and we think that's the thing to do. Now, nothing's wrong with resting physically. Obviously, God created a whole day of the week for for rest, which is great. That was a brilliant idea. You know, and he says in the Psalms, um, the Lord gives sleep to those he loves. I'm like, yes, amen. I want more of that. That's brilliant. God isn't against sleep. He's not against physical rest. He's absolutely for it. But the problem is, sometimes we see physical rest and not doing anything as a substitute for spending time with the Father. And that's not right. That's not right. We need to be regularly refreshed in his presence. We don't come crashing to a halt and just stop everything. We look to the Father for that mid-air refuel, which allows us to be in it for the long haul, not depending on our own energy, but on his strength and his power. Another way to look at it might be your mobile phone. Imagine that you've got your phone and the battery goes down to zero. What do you do in that moment? Do you go, oh no. I better stop using this phone, put it in a drawer, and then close it, and then come back to it the next day and go, okay, how, oh, still at zero. Of course you wouldn't do that. That would be ridiculous, wouldn't it? Because at the end of that 24-hour period, it's not got any more charge in it than it had before. Jesus is showing us that when we choose God in those moments, if we want to be revitalized, refreshed, and restored, what we need to do is plug into the source. We need to come to God and say, fill us with your spirit again. When it talks about being filled in the Spirit in the Bible, it's an ongoing thing. It's not a one-time thing. It's an ongoing, Lord, fill me again. Fill me again. Fill me again. That's what true rest looks like. It's easy to look at what Jesus does here. You know, this whole getting out of his bed in the middle of the night in the dark and going to the wilderness and being like, well, that's a kind of... That's Jesus, isn't it? That's a kind of Jesus thing to do, isn't it? That's, that's what he would do, but, you know, come on. I'm not going to do that. But if we believe that Jesus was human, fully human, and he's battling tiredness and temptation to stay where he is, instead chooses to get up and be uncomfortable to be in God's presence because he knows there's not going to be another chance and the crowds are going to be all over him, then there's a clear challenge for us there. If we know that Jesus is choosing to do that and he's facing all that opposition and he does it anyway, there's a challenge for us. Often I feel in my life when when it's full on and it's busy, I tend to do one of two things. I either weirdly go into more busyness, I kind of go into overdrive to get more things done, or it's just complete inaction. It's like nothing. And either one of those options, I end up feeling worse. Jesus shows us what to do. He says, go to the Father one-on-one. And just just as I was praying and kind of like prepping this, I, I felt God say... That for if there's anyone here that feels stressed today, if you feel tired or, or strained, I almost had a picture in my head of like a rope kind of like feeling like it was about to snap. That, that sense of just being completely under pressure. Jesus wants to give you peace. This is the same Jesus who spoke calmness over the, the wind and the waves and they obeyed. 
He wants to bring you peace. He knows your situation and he, he knows the solution. But for each one of us, we need to choose that. We need to choose to go to him. And just seeing what Jesus does and, and, and going out and being sacrificial in this way, I feel like it's a weighty challenge for us. Like, I think, honestly, that, like, if we read this and we're like, we need to take this seriously, that's a weighty challenge. But what we can do when the Bible challenges is we can feel that it's like this oppressive kind of crushing, you need to do this kind of oppressive weight, when actually it's more like we're kind of balanced on a prep precipice like on a cliff and we're like that and the weight of God's scripture is like pulling us back and actually feeling the weight of what he's telling us to do is a good thing and he's doing it because he loves us and so for us let's let this sink in this morning if there's something in our lives that's not quite balanced it's not quite right we need to hear this challenge and be like okay God I'm listening if I need to spend more time with you if I'm going to the wrong things to be refreshed I want to change that so that's the first thing. The second thing is that Jesus is redirected. Uh, during the 5th century in Scotland, a bit of a history lesson, here we go. The 5th century in Scotland, we were vulnerable to attacks from violent Irish slave traders. And they, they would regularly raid the coast. And it was in one of these raids in four, the year 401, a 16-year-old boy called Patrick was taken out of his life of comfort and wealth, and he was taken back to Ireland, and he was made a slave of one of the Irish chieftains, right? And this chieftain made him a shepherd. And back then, that was not a good job. Basically, it meant that he was isolated, he was alone, he was left on this mountain day and night, like on his own for months and cold like absolutely starving, didn't know the local language, and he was just left there. And so Patrick has went from this like pretty decent life to just being in the middle of nowhere, this shepherd, not knowing anyone. And in this moment, what happened was over time, Patrick started to turn to God. His family, his, his granddad was a priest, and there was a bit of kind of history there, but he'd never really taken God seriously. And in this moment, despite his circumstances, he was like, he turned to God. And what happened was over time, he grew deeper in relationship with God. His love for God grew, despite everything that was happening, which is amazing. And six years go by, right, from the point he's been kidnapped. And then one day he has a, a vision from God while he's asleep saying, it's time to go home. I've got a ship ready for you. And so Patrick kind of bolt upright, just goes Ugh, like that. And he walks for 200 miles to the coast. Um, and when he gets to the coast, he sees this ship and he's like, that's my ship. And he goes up to the, the ship and goes to the captain. Um, slaves aren't allowed on board, so it's very unlikely he's going to get a place. And he says to the captain, can I come on board? And he's like, no, no chance. But he knows that God's asked him. And so he just, he goes back and he prays. And then all of a sudden this sailor comes running out of nowhere and says, yeah, you can come on your ship. I've, I've got a message. You can, he just hands him this message yeah, you can come on. Really weird. So he gets on the ship. The ship sails for two years. And eventually, after eight years of being away, he gets back to Dumbarton in Scotland. And he's reunited with their family. And they're overjoyed. They're so happy. And his parents are like, never leave again. Like, we, we've missed you so much. We're so glad that you're home. Never, ever leave us. One night, he's sleeping. And he has a dream of a man that he knew in Ireland who was called Victorious. That's a great name, isn't it? Hazel, write that one down. Victorious Hall. I think that could, that could be a winner. 
He sees victorious this guy he knew in his head, and he's begging him to come back to Ireland. And also in this dream, not just this man victorious, but a multitude of people are saying, come back to Ireland. Come back and walk among us again. And he wakes up, and he, and he can't get this, this image out of his head. And as time goes on, he decides what it is, is it's God is calling him to come back to Ireland from the place that he just escaped from. And so he decides to um, train as a priest and he becomes a bishop. And over time, he becomes one of the first missionaries to go to Ireland. And his mission is incredibly successful. And in a really short space of time, droves of people come to know Jesus. And by the time he dies, all the warring tribes in Ireland, that's, that's pretty much stopped. Slavery has stopped in Ireland, and it's pretty much become a Christian nation. That whole nation is turned upside down on its head. And that man was St. Patrick, if you didn't see that one coming. Now, that's a pretty amazing story, right? But in particular, there's that moment of when he finally gets back home after eight years, nearly a decade of being away, and God says, I want you to go back to the place that you've just escaped from. Hearing God's call in that moment. To a lot of people, that would have made no sense at all, right? It's like, no, why would I go back there? But he responds to God's voice. And here we've got Jesus doing a similar thing. He's left this big town of Capernaum, goes off to pray. Soon the disciples wake up. They realize, where's Jesus? He's not here. And they go off to look for him. And when it says that word look in the Bible, it doesn't mean like, oh, I've lost my keys. It's like a frantically, like, I've lost my child, kind of like really, really desperately looking for him. And eventually they find him and they're like, they say, everyone is looking for you. And the tone that's there is they're mad at Jesus. They're like... Jesus, what are you doing? Why are you here? Why are you in the middle of the desert? We need to get back to Capernaum now. And what Jesus is doing makes no sense to them because on day one of this ministry, it's exploded. Everything has went so well. People are being healed. You know, they want to meet them. There's crowds like saying, where is Jesus? Like, we want to experience him. And yet, he's removed himself from that entirely. Why is he in the desert? Jesus replies, Let's go somewhere else. Let's go to a nearby village. I was like, what? Now's not the time to leave. Strike while the iron's hot. Come on, we've got to take advantage of this, God. Like, Jesus, what are you doing? To stay seems like the right thing to do. It seems like the good thing to do. But Jesus maps something out out for us here because he doesn't make a move until he's gone to his father in prayer and asked him what he thinks. The son only does what he sees the father doing. Jesus shows complete submission to God's authority and his plans. And the disciples here are bringing the wisdom of man. And it seems good. If we go back to the people, you know, we can see many more healed and many more demons cast out. They all want to see you, Jesus. Capernaum's a great base to operate from. Simon's mother-in-law's here. You know, we've got a house we can stay in. If we go to these villages, we don't know what we'll find. You know, they might not like us there. We might end up, like, sleeping rough or whatever. Like, you know, Jesus, this isn't a good plan. Makes sense to stay, right? Often our wisdom talks to us like that. It pulls us in a particular direction that seems good on the surface. And in those moments, we can confuse our will with the will of God. Oh, clearly this is what he wants me to do. Makes sense. Have we asked him? I don't know about you, but often 
rather than like thinking like that and going to seek God's will first, I'll find myself bringing my ready-made plans to God and say, God, would you bless these plans? Would you make, would you make these plans fly? On the surface, they might seem like good plans and good ideas, but have I asked what God wants to do? 1 Corinthians, the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. The wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. I can't imagine what that conversation was like with Patrick sitting with his mum and dad saying, I know I've been away for eight years, but I'm off. They would have been like, what? Are you serious? God's telling me to go. Sometimes God's plans seem to make no sense to us. Our ideas might be the safer or more sensible option. But as followers of Jesus, what he's calling us to do is to trade our wisdom for his. Not to just go with what we think is the right option, but actually to, to swap our good for God's best. Because we don't know what he's got planned. I'll just tell a really quick story. I think I've told this before, so apologies if you've heard this before. But there was a guy I knew a few years ago who... Um, he was uh, driving home. Uh, he, had a, he, was a lands- he had a landscaping job, and he had his pay packet sat on the passenger seat in his car. And he felt God say to him in that moment, I want you to give your entire wage to me. And he was like, oh, God, I would do that. I would, but, you know, rent's due. Like, I'm just going to pay my rent, uh, food, money, and all this kind of stuff. Like, that's not a responsible use of my money. Like, I would, Lord, but, you know. And then a little bit of time passes, and he hears God again say, would you give your entire wage to me? And he's, again, he's like, God, I would, but, you know, would that be responsible? Would that be the right thing to do? And, you know, time passes. He doesn't hear anything else from God, but this thought is just gnawing away at the back of his mind. And eventually, as he gets home, he pulls into his drive. He's like, I I need to do this. This is just an obedience thing. So he goes up into his room, and he's praying, and he just takes the money, And he just says, God, Sunday morning, this is going in the offering basket. And he lays it down. Moments later, so the use of props there, there was a knock on the door. And he goes downstairs, and it's one of his mates. And his mate goes to him, "Uh, God's just asked me um, just to give you this money. And he hands over an envelope full of money. And he just kind of goes, bye, and like runs away. And as my friend opens this envelope, it's the exact same amount of money that sat upstairs in his room, like to the pound. Amazing. And that what... What I want to illustrate with that is that this is this idea of trading our good, what we think is a good thing, for God's best, for what he has for us. You know, if we don't do that, if we don't follow his voice and what we feel he's calling us to do, we miss out on everything that he has for us, his plans and purposes. Jesus shows us here the posture we have to have before God. It's one of humility. Lord, am I submitting to you and your ways? Am I asking you about my relationships, about which job I'm in, about my plans for the future, about how I'm stewarding my money or using my time? We need to have humility to follow even when the answer doesn't make sense to us. Our posture needs to be one of listening, of straining to hear from God. Lord, what is the will that you have for my life? Where are you leading me? John 14 says, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. And it's that simple. If you love me, you'll obey my commands. It's saying, I'm going to do whatever you say, even when I don't understand it or it doesn't make sense to those around me. Where does this land for us? You know, there's, there's so many scriptures where this is the theme. 
My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways submit to him and he will make your path straight. Have we set plans in motion? Have we went down paths in our lives that we've just kind of assumed is God's will? Or we just think, oh, that's the right thing to do. Where do we need to bring what we think is right and is sensible and bring it before God and say, God, is this, is this the way I should be going? And where do we need to trade our good for God's best? Okay, last point. Jesus is refocused. So uh, confession time. Uh, I'm a big fan of the reduced aisle in the supermarket. I think I may have mentioned this before, but I love it. I absolutely love it. So I cannot... I physically cannot walk past that section without having a little rummage around. I just have to see what's there. And uh, we were recently in the supermarket, and um, I was walking maybe about 20 meters away from that section, and I could see there was like a crowd of people there. I could see something was going on, and the immediate thought in my head was, I can't miss out. And so, like, I started like a kind of a quick walk, which turned into a bit of a jog, and I just left Hazel behind because I was like, I need to see what's there. I'm a little bit obsessed. I may have a problem. But the reason I get so distracted by the reduced aisles is you get some amazing deals, right? And I'm going to share with you this morning some of my uh, top finds. And so, this is the first one. It's going to come up on the screen. So you see that Indian meal for two. Cortica uh, Korma, Bajis, Pila Rice, two nan, 76p. Pretty good. Pretty good. I think that's pretty impressive. Uh, this was a more recent one. So all those pastries there. Um, this was 10 minutes before the shop was closing. They were going to go to the bin. That's how I justified it. They were 10p each. I think I paid about one. 10 and I got about 22 pastries that's a pretty good deal and then this this next one this is this this is glorious here we go 10p all those pastries for 10p now this was a week when hazel was away and so <laughs> I had a great time it was pretty magical but uh I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good at getting reduced items, right? I know the times when I need to go. I know, like, the best spots. Uh, but do you know what happens all too free? We can probably move past that. Oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> do you know what happens a lot of the time is that I, I go, I'll pick up a bargain in the shop. I'll have that warm glow inside, like I've beaten the system, and it's great. And I'll walk home with it, and I'll go to Hazel. I'll be like, look what I got. And I'll just show her all this stuff. And she's like, that's great. Where's the milk? You know, where's the thing that you actually set off to get in the first place? Have you got that? Is is the bread there? And I'm like, ah, no, that's a little bit awkward. You see, for me, I get dazzled by these yellow stickers. I can't walk past them. I get so distracted, I forget why I'm there in the first place. And for us, it's easy in life to get distracted, isn't it? It's easy to get pulled away by other things and to forget, what am I here for? What, what am I, why am I actually here? What am I doing? In the passage, Jesus' day before, you know, when all the crowds were around him, probably felt a bit like a yellow sticker kind of day. Lots going on, crowds of people wanting his attention. And like we've said, on the surface, it all seemed like good stuff. But after spending time with the Father, Jesus says, we're going somewhere else. We're going, leaving this place for a nearby village so I can preach there too. And he says, that is why I have come. Jesus absolutely knows what he's doing and what he's about. 
And so often for us, we don't live our lives with that same focus and intentionality. There are so many things that cry out for our attention because life is busy. It can be so busy sometimes and we can be distracted by other stuff. You know, if we were to sit and think right now about what took up the majority of our time and our thought life, what would that list look like in our head? You know, work pressures, projects, you know, stress about money, looking after the kids, or schoolwork, exams, it's Frank's birthday next Saturday, we need to get him a present, I haven't replied to his invitation yet. You know, that could, our relationships, all this stuff just vies for our attention. Whatever that looks like for you, we all have big things that occupy our time and our headspace. And these things aren't necessarily wrong, they're just part of normal life a lot of the time, and that's fine. But if we let them, they become like yellow stickered items that take our attention away from the main thing, the central thing in our lives as Christians, which is Jesus and seeing his kingdom come on earth. Seeing him have his rule and reign in our lives and in our communities. We allow ourselves to be pulled in different directions and our lives can just become muddled. I've got a smartphone, I know, quit bragging, right? But I've got a smartphone, and it's a great wee phone, but if I could change one thing about it, it would be the camera. The camera's not great, because it does this thing, I don't know if your phone does this, but you go to take a picture, and it'll seem to, you know, I'll be fine, and then all of a sudden, someone will move in the background, and it'll go, uh-huh, and it just starts zooming in there, and then someone will move, like, uh-huh, like that. And what happens is it just jumps in and out of focus, trying to, like, grab all these different images and what happens nine times out of ten is you get a ridiculously blurry picture that you can't use so I don't really take a lot of pictures anymore it needs the ability to be able to focus on one thing the prominent object in the shot and let all the other lights and color and noise and movement blur into the background for us to live our lives for God we need that ability we need to be able to hone in on the central thing Why are we here? Why has God put us here? It's all about Jesus and his mission. And when we let that focus become like a regular thing that we we look to, a daily thing, it becomes the lens through which we see our world, that we remember as we're at work or school or in the street or wherever, that God's put me here for a reason. He wants to see his kingdom come on earth, and he wants to use me in that. Wow. You know, for Hazel and I, if our weekly shop relied entirely on reduced yellow sticker bakery items, it'd be good for a while. It'd be pretty great. But it wouldn't be a balanced diet, would it? You know, the occasional pastry is okay, but if all we eat all day is rubbish, it's not going to be good for us. Part of us coming to the Father is for Him to refocus us, reaffirm us, and say, this is who I am, and this is who I've made you to be. And that's food for the soul right there. That's daily bread. When we come to God and He's like, this is who I've made you to be. This is how loved you are. And this is my mission. This is what I'm calling you into. That feeds us. Whether we know the specifics of what God has called us to for this like season of our lives, whether we know that or not, the broad goal for all of us is the same. 
we have the same mission statement to make disciples of all nations, to tell other people about him, and to let our lives be a giant signpost that point to Jesus in every situation. It's a really simple thing. And for me, where I look at my failings in that area, I have to ask myself, well, have I been spending time with the Father? Have I? Yeah, I, find, I find this really hard to, to speak about Jesus. How much time have I spent with him this week? Have I been inviting him to speak to me in a way that nobody else can because he knows me perfectly and he loves me absolutely? When we operate from that place of knowing who we are, knowing that we're loved, and knowing Jesus' mission, it's like we're refocused by him. The world makes sense, and we know what he's calling us to do. And we're not supposed to do this out of a sense of duty, but we're called to hear his voice above the noise. He promises he'll equip us to give us the words to speak. He just asks us to trust him and to step out. Where do we need to refocus this morning? What do we do when background noise and the pressures of life have taken God's place in our heart? Jesus here maps out the answer for us. Get up. Go to the Father one-on-one. Allow Him to restore you and to show you what true rest means. To redirect you towards His best and to refocus you on who He is and what He's calling us to do. Let's stand.